Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. We've been avoiding a Bill of Rights in this country for a very long time because, you know, they suddenly hold us accountable to things that we think we're about. And I think that's really important. And of course, at the cornerstone of that is the protection of country and the acknowledgement of of our long, long history. So for me, nationalism, not the national day, but the nationalism, we articulate the aspiration of what we think this nation needs to be. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Rethinking nationalism. Recent conversations around how best to mark January 26 have once again reignited debate around our national identity and the place of First Nations people in modern Australia. The national holiday also provided an opportunity for us all to think about what constitutes our national identity, what value we place on multiculturalism and where Indigenous Australians sit within that framework. Further to that, in recent years, calls have escalated for a formal process of truth-telling around our colonial history, something many see as crucial to Indigenous recognition and reconciliation. These issues were explored in greater detail during the forum Rethinking Nationalism, which was held at the University of Technology Sydney as part of the 2020 Sydney Festival. The event brought together a group of industry leaders to consider the values and traditions that make Australia unique, and how those constructs continue to dictate our perceptions of a national identity. Joining the conversation were Indigenous Affairs Editor with The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen, Lyndon Coombs, who has more than 20 years' experience working in the area of Indigenous Affairs and is Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jumbana Institute, and Artistic Director of the Sydney Festival, Wesley Enoch. We begin the conversation with Lorena Allen as she reflects on how our cultural makeup influences and determines our perceptions of nationalism and our place in contemporary Australia. Uh, my grandmother was born in a place called Angledool Reserve, which is up in the far northwest of New South Wales in Yuwalarai country. And so I share that Yuwalarai Gamilaroi heritage, but I also have South Asian heritage as well and Anglo heritage on my mother's side. So all of those things in a mix have influenced the way I look at my place in Australia. But ultimately, it's my Aboriginal family who I am closest to and who I was raised by and grew up with. And so I identify very strongly with those cultural ties. I'm very proud of my cultural ties. And I mean, look at my mob. How could, <laughs> how could you not be? So I think when you talk about nationalism, I don't think I've ever seen myself growing up anyway reflected in the culture that was beamed out to me as a child. So I always looked at this concept of nationalism as it was always something for somebody else, but it wasn't for me. And what about you, Lyndon? Yeah, well, very similar story. My mother was raised on Brewarrina Mission, wasn't allowed to finish school, left school at 14, was indentured out in servitude to homesteads around the area, and that's a, unfortunately another common story for a lot of Aboriginal people. But when I was growing up, I probably felt more Australian than I do now. There's been a, a shift. My family, whether it was that mission upbringing, they did a really good job, really hard to sort of find language and roots and people. And so that was sort of stopped. And our family wasn't particularly political. I didn't have a strong cultural upbringing. We were sort of a sport, rugby league and cricket household and, you know, left the politics and and all the other stuff to other people. But as I got to learn more about my culture, more about the history of this country, I felt less and less connected to this as a country and also travelling a bit in my younger days and meeting different people from around the world and other Indigenous people and finding that I have way more in common with them than my next-door neighbour. That really started me thinking about what is this thing, Australia, this boundary. There's actually lots of people in this country that don't like me and they don't like my family and they don't like the people that we come from. 
So I sort of went a bit away from that, and I do identify as Australian. I you know, follow the cricket and all the sports teams and all that sort of stuff, but it, even that now I'm starting to question why. And I don't want to question it because I enjoy it. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's kind of been my journey in terms of identifying as an Australian and feeling a part of this. The other part to that is the social contract between the Australian state and Aboriginal people, and I don't think that's ever been there for us. I think as an Australian, you have certain expectations around services, around your freedom, around what you're able to do, and that's not the same for us. It just isn't. And so until that issue is addressed and addressed meaningfully, there's going to be a schism, and it's writ large at this time every year, that breakdown and in that social contract and in that relationship and yeah we'll be seeing it again tomorrow. Wesley how about you how has your cultural background shaped what being Australian means to you? On my father's side of the family that's where the Aboriginal kind of lineage comes from but also I've got a great great grandfather who was a Filipino fisherman called Fernando Gonzalez and he came out and also another great grandfather who was named Fataki who was from Rotoma Island in the South Pacific and Blackbird and married into the family as well and then on my mother's side of the family my Danish great-grandmother met my Spanish great-grandfather on a boat coming out after World War II and this kind of sense of I don't know, shape-shifting that you do growing up in these environments. There's different cultures at home than there are on the streets, different cultures at the workplace or in the school, and that what you do from this cultural background is shift in an almost kind of survival mentality way, shape-shift into the environment so you can stay safe in it. For me, uh, that's become more and more, like taking Lyndon's point, more and more prevalent in the last 20 years where I think the kind of nationalism has gone into high drive and the kind of storytelling and narrative has become overexposed in this kind of way. Like the Anzac story, the Australia Day myth and story, the Captain Cook myth and story have gone into absolute high gear since I'd say the Howard years maybe before then as well. I mean, I think 88 kind of shifted a whole lot of conversation around nationalism. But then in the Howard years, there was a real sense of the narratives being funded through public funds, the kind of big storytelling that would placate the masses and give a sense of fear of others, but sense of legitimacy and validity in another. And we've seen, I think, a greater schism. So the shape-shifting is almost impossible now. You can't shapeshift to accept the 26th of January as the day, remembering that it was only legislated to happen in 1994, that it had to happen on that date. Before then, it was whatever long weekend we could make at the end of January. Remember that? It wasn't a kind of as important thing, but after 88, it really took off and then pumped up, I think, under the Howard years in different ways. So, you know, Lyndon's point for me saying, I too, in the last 20 years, I'm 50 now, so in these last 20 years, I go, my survival is not so much about how I can fit in and shapeshift into it, but going, the disconnect is so great that you now have to be actively talking about other narratives. As director of Sydney Festival, you had the challenge as an Indigenous person to have to program around Australia Day, and I want to talk to you a bit later about how you've managed that. But one thing you must have had to ponder is, do we need a national day at all? And especially when you talk about that history. Mm. What are your reflections on that? I think a national day is an interesting idea. Lots of other countries have them. You know, it's not unusual. And often it's around the formation of a country. There's a sense of, uh, we mark this day as the beginning of a sense of nationhood. But it's hard when we were formed on the 1st of January, 1901. It's not like a, we go, we already got a holiday for that. So <laughs> there's no sense of ceremony really about those kind of ideas. And so this notion of reaching out for a national day that we can all kind of bring us together is interesting. Just a, a little sidebar about the Australia Day kind of push in, let's call it the 1930s, leading up to the 150th anniversary of the First Fleet arrival between the wars. The ANA, the Australian Natives Association, which we had to be a Australian-born male to join, were the advocates for what this Australia Day could be. And they were saying, well, how do we commit ourselves to the narrative of empire? 
And I love this story of in 1938, which is what they were leading up to, in 1938 was also the beginning of the resistance to the National Day happening on that day, which was the Day of Mourning. So the protest, if you like, against the National Day happening on the 26th of January is as old as Australia Day itself. And when people say, oh, no, we've been doing it forever, and you go, and so have we. (laughs) All of you have spoken about the national narratives that have shaped your reactions to how you feel about being Australian and Australia Day. But I was just wondering if I could get you to reflect on what could be the positives of nationalism. And I guess when we've been through the climate crisis we've seen over summer, you actually do see elements of the Australian character that I think make many of us proud. I was just wondering, can nationalism be a good thing? And what are the positive things about a national identity that you think that we have? And I might start with you, Lyndon. Yeah, that's an interesting question because it forces me not to be cynical. But I think one of the positives is if we understand and implement all these values that we're meant to adhere to as Australians. You know, we hear a lot of talk about Australian values. No one knows what they are. Immigrants to this country know what they are because they have to know them as part of their citizenship test. And so and it goes back to Wesley's point about coming together and having a great story around the country. The US Independence Day, kicking the English out, Bastille Day, storming the, the fortress, great stories, provides a narrative from which your values kind of come. And that was sort of my argument around the 26th of January, is just, it's not a very good story. <laughs> it's, it's a bunch of convict ships dropping anchor over there somewhere. If you were propping up a bar somewhere around the world and someone said, tell us the story of your national day, that wouldn't be a good yarn. And so I think the opportunity is there now and for me, it's treaty, where we come together and bring that conversation together, because there is a good story to tell, there is a great story to tell for all of us. And if we're mature enough and ambitious enough as a country, as a nation, then we'll have something worth celebrating and it will be inclusive. We won't have to coerce people. It doesn't need to be a culture war. So that would be my hope for the good of nationalism. Great, and it's our job to make sure you don't become cynical as well, because I'm sure you can be too quite late. optimistic when you're pushed. <laughs> How about you, Lorena? I too am very cynical, so when I see... <laughs> Sorry, obviously I'm a nation trait. <laughs> I think looking at some of the incredibly powerful and heroic moments that we've seen during this catastrophe in the bush... They are, to me, they are the Australian values where we we look after each other and we are brave and care for our fellow humans. So when you see those things, and for our native wildlife, those things are really powerful and moving. But to me, nationalism, unless it comes from a deep love of the country, is an empty thing. And so those values seem to be being displayed in relation to the devastation of our countryside. And I think... A true nationalism honours the land. We really should not be in this situation where we're, we're having to say goodbye to some of our iconic wildlife. You know, the lyrebird is now potentially an endangered species. What do we then put on our coins of the realm? So there are these deep questions we need to face as a nation about what it is we really value. Because all of those sort of big values don't mean a lot if you don't have a country to embed them in, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. The one thing we share is this continent, and if we don't look after it, then who are we? Wesley? Give that a clap. (laughs) I'm optimistic. (laughs) Just in the last, let's call it 10 years, the shift around a national day as it is now has, I think, reflected a lot more of what is a people's movement. This notion of maybe the scepticism that we're talking about has built in, and that we don't, as Australians, want to get too up ourselves. And so this notion of, you know, rah-rah flag waving is just not sat well on us as a nation. And so our natural day of reflection and thinking about things has kind of taken off. So I believe that a national day is important if it does really express our true values. The biggest thing is not to allow political ideology to overtake what is 
in the people themselves. And as we're saying, I think people are naturally generous, thoughtful, and if they aren't naturally that, we are aspirational in terms of those ideas. And the bushfires being a really clear example of how we all, as Australians and people around the world, go, how do we gather together? I was on the National Brand Committee recently, where we're talking about international trade and brand. And some of the big ideas were, you always want an Australian in the room. Because there's something about us that connects with others and puts people at ease. And we have a drink and have a chat and we know how to yarn. And there's kind of these ideas of who we are. Now, the problem is that we start to borrow what other people have done for national days rather than make one that is uniquely us. And that if we just keep borrowing from others and not reflect who we are and where we live and what's molded us, it's almost like we wish to forget, you know, in, the, in Stanner's kind of idea of the forgetfulness of Indigenous history, we want to forget that we are an elder in the world. And we want to hold on to being a juvenile. We want to forget that trade and migration to this continent has been happening for tens of thousands of years. And we want to be the new kid on the block. What we have to do is really reflect our true history and our true nature, rather than thinking that only 230 odd years ago, that's when it all started. And that we want to be young and perky and interesting and kind of, aren't we lucky that we're here and we're lucky that we've got these things? Instead of actually saying, no, they have been prepared for us to live here for tens of thousands of years and that we owe a debt to that history. And therefore, our connection to country, our connection to each other, our connection to our neighbours, to the idea of people welcoming people who come here, the knowledges that have shaped our nation, that's what our National Day truly is. We've just not found the right date for it yet. And the search will continue. Uh, and I'm optimistic. <laughs> you are. Thank God someone is. <laughs> <laughs> Lorena, as a journalist and historian, you've spent your career, I guess, working in the places that, where the stories are that challenge the national narrative. I'm thinking about work you've done as a journalist for the ABC and now at The Guardian, but also the work you've done when you worked on the Bringing Them Home report and your work as a visual artist. And I was just wondering if you could reflect for us in the times that you've been working in this space, how have you seen that narrative that was born out of the Great Australian Silence that Wesley referred to, that had been coined about that narrative of the white man conquering the land? I think, wow, okay. I think it's quite elastic. We seem to, we being Australia, seem to keep going back to a point I'd like to refer to what Wesley said at the beginning, which is that we cling more tightly to an outdated version of ourselves now than we did 10, 15 or 20 years ago. So when I started out as a journalist, it was a much more positive environment for Indigenous people. There were very few of us in the media, but we were telling stories that were being surfaced in lots of ways, and that's just blossomed in the last decade, 10 or 15 years. Filmmakers and theatre and everything that we've seen is quite powerful and transformative and has really shifted the national thinking. But it's almost like Australia has always... You know, Wesley talks about 1938 when there was the day, the Australia Day began and then the protests began simultaneously. As Indigenous culture has flourished in, in, and become more aware... The mainstream has become more aware of our creative genius. The pushback is equally strong or stronger. And I do think the Howard years did a lot of damage to us as a nation, not just Indigenous people. Um, we saw the end of the last elected representative body to speak to government on our behalf. Uh, we lost uh, major uh, important planks of the native title legislation. We lost our independence in terms of our capacity for to develop and fund and, and run our own community-controlled organisations. And that flowed on into just about everything we see today with punitive welfare legislation that people labour under in the Northern Territory under the intervention, the cashless welfare card. These things have a massive impact on people's ability to dream and create and think of a better future. So I think there's this elasticity to 
progress in this country and we're now at a, a crucial point I think where the country itself is in crisis and we can't afford to keep having that conversation anymore we have to get better at looking after each other and looking after this country otherwise I mean <laughs> there is no nation if we haven't got a safe place and a healthy place to live. Can I add to that too 2021 will be 20 years since the Tampa incident and when you think about Tampa Tampa was the first prototyping of this rejection of refugee, rejection of asylum, and that we prototyped for the rest of the world how we, uh, over the last 20 years, the rest of the world are looking at those who seek asylum and seek help. We were doing that in the Howard years, 20 years ago next year. And this interesting thing of, we look at it now and we go, gee, it's bad. And you can go back to that moment when it was weaponized as a political weapon and that our psyche, when you think about, well, well, let's talk about then Fraser, with the Vietnamese refugee scenario, he was more welcoming, more open, more thoughtful. And he said to any critic, suck it up. This is the world. We have to look after people and subsequent leaders after that. But Howard went, I can get political edge and wedge from this. And they released, uh, well, I, I think the devil. The devil was released then. Lorena, I just want to dig a little bit deeper into the idea that when Indigenous story and experience is put into the public domain, it isn't always necessarily the response that people engage with it. There's often the rejection of it, and you, you spoke about that in terms of this idea of elasticity. And I was just wondering, I mean, you've done some very significant pieces of work in recent times, and I'm not just saying that I'm, because I'm your cousin, but you've got <laughs> Walkley Awards to show it. And I'm thinking particularly of the important work you've done with Massacre Maps and the work that you did on the database around deaths in custody. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are the challenges of trying to inject a recognition of what are actually difficult things for the broader community to come to terms with. They're hard for our community to deal with because it triggers trauma, but these are challenging parts of our history. And in your work, you must have seen how that plays out. Mm. Well, on the Bringing Them Home report, the pushback against that was vicious and prolonged. From almost before the report was released, the government, there were all sorts of shenanigans behind the scenes about the release of that report, and, and they were shoring up a way to diminish its recommendations even before it was released. And then there was a decade of attempts by historians to discredit the research that was done. We ended up in, in a history war that was vicious and prolonged and caused great pain to really important people, including... Professor Lyndall Ryan at the University of Newcastle, who is, I think, a national treasure, who, who persisted with her research into massacres, even though it was criticised and condemned by Quadrant and others. She faced, in a way, an attack on her scholarship and her authority that we see playing out today around the dark emu. But one of the abiding things in all that work is that I keep thinking of this quote by Son of Baldwin, who's a, an American writer and thinker who I follow, uh, his real name is Robert Jones Jr. But he said, people want the truth until you give it to them. And I think that's been true of just about all of the big work that we've done in the last few years on The Guardian. It's, it's, it is uncomfortable. It's ugly. It's challenging. And it's heartbreaking. Particularly the deaths in custody database was, you know, each of those things costs when they're made. But they also are, in a way, an opportunity to take a good look at the side of the country that our mob experience on the day-to-day. -day. And once you see that, what do you do then? You have to take away and think about it, don't you? You have to... It changes you, surely, to look at that map and see all of those dots and, you know, put in your postcode and, and know that there was one near where you grew up or maybe there was one near where you grew up that isn't on the map that should be, that you knew about because somebody in your family talked about it. So it's uncomfortable and it's challenging and it causes pain to our mob to see that. <clears throat> so it was very important for us to put warnings on, well, just to make people aware that you are clicking through into some very challenging material. But overwhelmingly, people are positive about it. They are glad of the opportunity to learn something new. I'm just curious to know what happens next. What do people who didn't know about this history? Because that trope still persists. The why weren't we told? It's like, well, you were. And here you are. Now you, now you know. What are you going to do now? 
So that's my question for people who are new to finding out about this. What are you going to do now? You've just heard Indigenous Affairs Editor for The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen. She was speaking at the panel discussion Rethinking Nationalism held as part of the 2020 Sydney Festival. You also heard from Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jambana Institute, Lyndon Coombs, and outgoing Artistic Director of the Sydney Festival, Wesley Enoch. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app? And that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. Tonight on Speaking Out, we're featuring the UTS Big Thinking Forum, Rethinking Nationalism. A highlight from last year's Sydney Festival, the event saw a group of leading Indigenous thinkers explore new ways to consider our national identity. We'll bring you more from the conversation after some music from the female folk trio, Titters. Released back in 1993 on their debut album, Sing About Life, here they are with Changing Times. When you find what you're looking for, ain't no need to go looking anymore. Wrong way up a one-way street, may you ride through the people that you meet. Read the signs, give me direction to who you might meet. Changing Gotta keep moving And in myself I gotta believe I gotta keep changing Read the signs, give me direction To who you might need Titters with changing times. Let's return now to the panel discussion Rethinking Nationalism, a UTS Big Thinking Forum and one of the highlights of the 2020 Sydney Festival. We'll pick up the conversation with Lyndon Coombs as he considers how a process of truth-telling can prove influential to advancing discussions around a treaty. Yeah, a little of what I said before because uh, I'm a pretty simple person and the treaties is really encompassing of all of these discussions and this national identity so it comes on the back of our connection to country what that means having those stories told 
going from the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, that that process has to run as well to have these difficult discussions. And that's why I was talking about maturity before. And it is one of my, my hopes that we can move these discussions into a mature and measured environment. And while there is emotion attached to that, and rightly so, that we can be constructive about this. And my optimism also comes that when I was a sort of junior burger working in the New South Wales government 20 years ago and native title was just coming in and, and the government was shitting themselves, not knowing how to manage this and put a fence around it, it felt like you had to whisper treaty. You know, you couldn't have a, an open discussion because it was so radical and so dangerous, this idea of treaty, whereas now we can talk about it. Uh, saying church groups, unions, corporates are supportive of treaty. And, and after seeing the, the same-sex marriage process play out, that also gave me some optimism. And it, it changed my thinking in a way because I think as Australians and also as Aboriginal people, we put too much faith and focus on the government. And same-sex marriage came from the people, that process. And so it really changed my view because I was trying to think of all the machinations and things you could put in place through legislation and this and that and strategise. I thought, no, there's a um, wave of support in critical areas for this process to happen. And so, yep, that gave me some optimism. And like I said, I, I don't know Pollyanna, but it's a big process. It's a, a complex one, but there, there needs to be a shift in our national culture and national identity, the way that we talk to each other, the way that we interact with this. And in some ways, watching the bushfires, well, I've felt that there has been a shift. Because Aboriginal people always talk about relationship and connection to country. And people seeing what's happened to that country now know how much they care about it. And seeing the animals and I know the human cost has been overwhelming, but seeing our native animals suffer gets me every time. And so then we're thinking about our relationship back to these native animals. And as Indigenous people, we have our totems and we have a deep connection to these animals and to look after them. And, and hopefully that might be one of the good things is that people start to shift, not looking at the land as a resource, not looking at animals as something that should be in the zoo or, or be eaten, just that we start thinking differently about this place. And if it took the bushfires, that's unfortunate, but hopefully we can build on that and use that because I think every Australian um, has been affected by that. Maybe everyone should actually have a totem. Yes. Like, you know, even if you don't, if you aren't born with one, I know Michael is the koala, but, but the notion of, you know, what is your animal that you will protect and look after, mm. that that's a personal thing that you can do. What is your totem? So at least you belong in this country. That could be interesting. Mm. One of mine's the lyrebird, so I can oh. tell you from experience it can be pretty profound when you feel the effect of anything. Mine's about. a carpet snake. It's not as interesting. <laughs> Stern away from you. And I just, before I wanted to come back to Lyndon and ask uh, some questions around representation, but just before I did, Lorena, I know in your role at The Guardian, you've obviously followed a lot with the treaty debates, and I just wanted to see if you wanted to add anything before I moved on. Uh, there's a lot of treaty processes happening around the country now, and as a reporter, I can see lots of... It's really encouraging that there are state governments and territory governments willing to enter into arrangements with our mobs. I really hope that, and I really want to see Aboriginal people, First Nations, resourced to organise themselves around the treaty process the way they want to do it. I think it's well past time that there's some attention paid to that. I know that in our communities it's been done, but I think that there could be a lot more capacity building offered to Indigenous communities to get organised around treaty processes. But treaties can be anything we want them to be, and... They can be about lots of different things with lots of different people. It's nothing to be scared of. <laughs> I think that's the important thing. You have to start a conversation. You have to start somewhere. And so there's lots of somewheres starting all around the country. And it's um, an interesting series of processes to watch. There's obviously been a long conversation about constitutional recognition. 
I was wondering, Lyndon, what your reflections on that have been in terms of what that means for nationalism. But I'm also mindful that a part of that conversation now is about voice to parliament and representative structures. You were the CEO of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. You've also had a role at ATSIC. So you've seen representative structures from the inside as well. So I was just wondering if you could maybe share your reflections on the constitutional recognition process and the importance of representation and perhaps some of the things that we should be thinking about from what you've seen with your experience. Yeah, uh, look, with the abolition of ATSIC, that was a, a massive blow for Indigenous people. We liked to bag it, but we liked having it there to bag. So there was a lot of criticism, but every day now there is something that happens that I just don't think would have happened had we had a strong national rep body in place I don't think the Northern Territory intervention would have happened I think we'd have a different conversation around election time I was disturbed at how little discussion there was around Indigenous issues at the last election and again that was an opportunity for a national rep body to put those issues up and have the government Listen, the other thing, bushfires are a recurring theme here just because they're so big in our mind at the moment, but my fear, and it's based on a history, where there are floods, fires, other weather events, disasters, and Indigenous people are affected, invariably they are the last to receive assistance if they receive that at all. And it's one of my biggest fears in terms of what happens with there's a lot of talk about the bushfire money where that goes and all the rest of it and because of that going back to the social contract context because we don't have that i fear that we'll miss out again every time we miss out even when we have our resources we miss out so a national rep body to me is just imperative and we're we're losing by not having that every day In terms of putting that aside and then looking at at treaty and a voice to parliament and constitutional recognition, they are all important things. My issue and why I prioritise treaty is that in five days, I think it'll come up for 22 years working in Aboriginal affairs. And I am tired of trying to negotiate with the government without any power from a weak position and asking for a voice. I want a national rep body. That's why I want a treaty, because then we demand it. We make it happen. I'm incredibly frustrated at playing a game that that you're just not going to win. And again, treaty, in my mind, changes this relationship. It changes the context. It changes the power structure so that when we do talk about constitutional recognition, it will be substantive. It won't be the thing that the government feels comfortable with. When we have these other discussions, they will be meaningful, not something that will be issue managed and that the government can kick down the road. And that's all they're doing. This is entrapment. You've got me ranty again. (laughs) Um, That the issues are just, you know, another committee, another report. Everyone's really tired of that. And and I'm frustrated by that. And I just don't want to play by those rules anymore. I want to redefine the relationship and the structures that just haven't served us. <laughs> Entrapment. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to see if uh, Wesley or Lorena wanted to add to that because I know you've both worked in those spaces as well. I think just to refer, like Rachel Perkins' Boyer lectures, where she pulls a lot of that stuff together is really worth listening to, where she, ha- she references a number of those kind of reports and discussions about a, a representative body, well, voice to parliament in this case. I think also that the greatest issues that we've had are ones where because there is a centralised policy-making body called the government, that there's an expectation that we can actually centrally organise and make policies that are uniformly applicable across, you know, pan-Indigenous Australia. When, in fact, you know, we are self-governing units of families and tribes and things, and that this idea of treaty is not a central treaty, but treaties is kind of almost antithetical to the way the government's set up at the moment too. Representative bodies that ape the government structure will always have tensions, and we have to accept that there are tensions in a representative body. And for me, I, I love the idea of how the Indigenous land use agreements are being negotiated and worked, though I'm not a great fan of native title 
and the way native title tribunals work and all those kind of things. I love the idea of once you have that kind of power, how you can negotiate over how land is being used and how families operate in that environment. And I think more and more how we see that kind of being rolled out could be more interesting. I just don't want a representative body to be the easy way and saying, oh, well, we'll just replicate what we do and that'll be right for you as well. And I think that the bigger point of this is that we still have to ask permission to get these things done is harder. And so as an artist, I guess my job is to create the narrative frameworks and the conversations and look at the heartstrings of the country so that we have a story background for it all. So that when people are asked, can you give people their human rights in their own land, that they don't feel so attacked by our sense of sovereignty, but they feel open to it. It's an interesting dynamic that I think a representative body, people have to acknowledge the power of First Australians. All I'd add to that is that there's a multiplicity of voices we need to hear from. There's so many nations in, in Australia that have their own way of doing business and they should be resourced to work out how they want to relate to governments of all stripe, whether it's local, state or federal. And so treaties and voices, plural, is what we're probably all looking at. And that's what I hear from people when I go about my job. Wesley, Australia Day. Can you talk about how, as the director of Sydney Festival, you've approached having to curate around that day? Perhaps a little bit about how your thinking's changed, because I think that's been something that's been influential on a lot of people, including myself. And then what you've got planned in terms of that for the festival. The history at Sydney Festival has been Australia Day as a day of celebration, you know, and it's kind of built into the DNA of the festival itself. And as a Kondamooka man coming into this environment, you know, I felt the kind of tension in there. And I kept saying, what is the key to the unlocking of this? What is it that I feel uncomfortable around the 26th of January? Invasion Day, Survival Day, Australia Day, they all coexist in my experience and in my mind. And I think it's because we lack ceremony and and ritual around it. In fact, if you're being naturalised, a naturalised Australian on that day, you get more ritual than any other Australian. Every other Australian has a barbecue, perhaps the lamb ad comes out. There's, you know, a kind of messaging that comes out from there, but there's not much ceremony. There's not much moment. And in fact, Anzac Day has more ceremony a dawn service, music, poetry, speech-making, remembrance, the idea then of a march where you remember the fallen. And I think, in fact, Anzac Day is the world's largest peace rally because every veteran says we should not go to war. And you go, wow. And then there's a kind of two-up game at the pub. There's a sense of how that day runs out because it's full of ceremony. And Australia Day lacks that. And I was driven by Noel Pearson's kind of conversation around the three narratives, which I kind of go ad nauseum about. But this notion of the three narratives that hold this country together are the longest continuous culture on earth, the British colonial project and the, in- the institutions we've inherited, and the most multi-ethnic, multicultural nation on earth. And that every room you walk into, those three narratives are at play. But somehow on the 26th of January, they seem to be in conflict and they are searching for the microphone to speak at and they are denied that microphone more often than not. When in fact, that's our lived experience. Every single person in this room has that lived experience and yet our National Day lacks the ceremonies around that. So at Sydney Festival, we were going, okay, what shall we do? And tonight there's a gathering at Town Hall and a procession down George Street, which will be a cleansing walk down George Street to get to Barangaroo. And at Barangaroo Reserve, we will do, as we did last year, the vigil, where we're asking Sydney siders and those coming here today to sit vigil from dusk of the 25th till dawn of the 26th. And as a mark of remembrance, as a reflection, to think about what it was like the day before the arrival of the First Fleet. To put things into a context, on the 26th, there will be a warship that plants itself in Circular Quay with massive screens and speakers calling out to you about one of the narratives. What's it like to put that into context and say, what's it like for us to remember the day before it all changed? 
And where are the narratives then that go, actually, we have come from everywhere to make this country what it is now? Not just the British, but even looking out at the room now, I see people from so many different corners of the world that have chosen to be on this continent. And how do we have more ritual and ceremony? That's why, you know, I half jokingly said, what is your totem? If you're going to be here in this country, what's your responsibility to this country? You go, that might be a wonderful kind of ceremony as well, where either you're given or you choose your own totem to look after in the years to come. Because we don't have enough ceremony about what a national day could be. We remember the fallen, but we don't remember how we stand here. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anyone thought you were half joking about the totem thing. I think everyone's thinking about that very seriously. It almost feels like a personal question to ask, given the politicised nature of Australia Day. But with three very distinguished Indigenous speakers on the stage. I was wondering if any of you would like to share with, with us how you are actually choosing to mark Australia Day with your family. And you're always an open book, Wesley, so we yeah. start with you. <laughs> I think of the 26th of January as the spur that makes me think about the history of the country and stuff. I use the 26th of January as a day of reflection, of thoughtfulness, of conversation with people, of reflection on who I am and where I come from. And though my family are all in Queensland and I'm not related to anyone else on stage, <laughs> though we might be related. <laughs> that moment of kind of reaching out is really important. And the thing that motivates me the most is if we don't have stories... If we don't connect with each other, our whole country will burn. And that we need those stories. And if we're going to have a national day, and if we're going to have nationalism, we have to connect with each other to stop ourselves from ruining yep. both ourselves and this country. Yes. Yeah. Well, well said. I couldn't agree more. Well said. Lorena Rolinden? I've been going to Yarbin every day for as long as I can remember when I was out at, I think it started out at La Perouse, mm. because there is a palpable anxiety for Aboriginal people as soon as you get rid of your hangover from New Year's Eve, the talk starts, the chatter starts mm. and you find yourself in conversations that you'd rather not be in, asking to explain things that you're really tired of explaining and it's exhausting. So I go to Yarbin and I find that's really uplifting. So the, the performances, the, the cultural aspect to that, catching up with heaps of people, 25,000 to 30,000 get through there over the course of the day and connecting with those people and sort of blocking out that other noise. So you're sort of in this little environment that's really great. There's a re really good vibe. Things always go well. It's always good entertainment. I take my kids along. And then that's about it. <laughs> I want to go to the beach and sort of clock off. But it, it is because it's like, ugh, it's done. It's done for another year and we can go back to our normal thoughts and our normal way of going about changing this country. But it, it, after all that said and done, it does charge me up a bit too because you start having these different thoughts and even though some of those conversations um, and some of the things you hear and read are pretty shitty... It helps your thinking. It helps my thinking on lots of this stuff. And so you have the long weekend rest and, you know, feel ready to go after that. Some years I march. I'm not sure about tomorrow. See how I feel when I wake up. Because I, I think it's exhausting. As Lyndon said, it's really true. And a lot of us feel this way. It's like when you get to the afternoon of survival, invasion, Australia Day, you just go, oh, thank God that's over for another year. And there was a lot of extra anxiety this year because it is the anniversary of Cook arriving. And so there was what's in store for us? What sort of jingoistic stuff are we going to have to block out this year? Strangely, it's been quite subdued, and I think the bushfires have had a big yeah. impact on that. Oh, yeah, when the actual... Yeah, that's when right. When the historically inaccurate <laughs> circumnavigation <laughs> of the nation happens, yes. So, but... I love Yarbin too because you can just sit there and just catch up with everybody and it fills you up. I mean, there might be people there you haven't seen all year and you mightn't see them again till next year, but it's relaxed. It's just a lovely place to be around people who get you straight away and who know how you're feeling and you have a good laugh as well. It helps when you have to suit up and go back out there 
on Tuesday morning. Quickly from each of you, perhaps you can give us a reflection of what your hope is for the future of the country in terms of rethinking about nationalism and if there's a call to arms. And I'll start with you, Wesley. I think what I've been talking about in terms of nationalism is I would love to see, if not a Bill of Rights, then a overt articulation of values that we can all hold up and be proud of. We've been avoiding a Bill of Rights in this country for a very long time because, you know, they suddenly hold us accountable to things that we think we're about. And I think that's really important. And of course, at the cornerstone of that is the protection of country and the acknowledgement of, of our long, long history. So for me, nationalism, not the national day, but the nationalism, we articulate the aspiration of what we think this nation needs to be. Mm. Oh, I think the antidote to despair is action. So I think people need to educate themselves about the history of this country. Think harder about your place in it. And once you see that great span of history, where do you fit in that chronology? And one of our elders who's passed away now used to ask this great question, what kind of an ancestor are you going to be? And that's a good question to ask yourself every day. What are you going to leave for your descendants? What is it that you love about this country that you want to protect and look after and place your energy into doing that? But always remember that the First Nations have been here first and, and they have knowledge that's important and their voices should be privileged and heard and acknowledged along the way. So as you're doing this work, always remember that when you walk this country, someone else has been here before you and they have a right to be seen. I think I mentioned maturity before just to be able to have these conversations and and always trying to think of ways of having these and hearing Wesley speak about the story of this country. It's a great story and we can actually make it real. Uh, There's a great myth, there's a great idea of Australia and all those values are there and they're all really good values and one of the key ones for me is justice and equity and the more that I have conversations with people who may not be informed or actively oppose Indigenous progress, I try to frame it in justice and equity. It's country of the fair go, mate, isn't it? You take the heat out of it, take the emotion out of it. There is no argument that we, as Indigenous people, have not had a fair go. And how do we fix that? And let's have a, a straight conversation about that. And until we do, and this whole shit show of, of Australia Day and the way it is right now and the way it feels, I believe comes from a place of discomfort and fear. And that discomfort and fear is knowing that there has been an injustice and that we're not addressing it. And as a country, we're not comfortable in this place. And until we do that, that should be our motivation when we talk about learning from Indigenous people and having that connection to country, it's not exclusive. and It's, it's something that can be shared and, and is shared um, with great generosity. So having that motivation to have that discussion and talking about a genuine fair go. That's Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jambana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. You also heard from Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen, and Outgoing Artistic Director of the Sydney Festival, Wesley Enoch. They were speaking at the Rethinking Nationalism panel discussion held as part of the 2020 Sydney Festival. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.